Well, good morning. It's great to see uh, all of you here this morning. Thank you for choosing to uh, worship with us uh, today. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter uh, 13, Hebrews chapter uh, 13. Uh, the message today is the third installment in our series on the theme of help. And today, today the title of the message is Our Ministry of Helping. And a sermon on uh, this topic, especially given the passages that we're going to look at today, is especially enjoyable uh, for me as one of the pastors here because this church body is filled with so many people who model the very things that we'll be talking about in the message uh, today. We're blessed to have so many people at Cornerstone who are uh, true helpers in the ministry uh, here, uh, but there are very few whose breadth of service would span the number of years of Ed and Leah Lindsay. So, and they weren't expecting this at all, but... <laughs> Ed and Leah are charter members of Cornerstone. One of their earliest ministries to the church was opening up their home for Cornerstone's first Sunday service back in August of 1981. Ed also served on the elder board of Cornerstone for a number of years, over a decade, I believe, and was always a steady hand and a humble voice for Christ on the, on the elder board. Ed was also a premier uh, servant during the years when our church was at the YWCA on Magnolia Avenue, uh, helping with setup and takedown uh, each Sunday, which was essential uh, back then. And very importantly, Ed was the man who made sure that coffee was available for everyone in abundant supply each Sunday. And I was personally grateful for that as a pastor knowing that there were people awake during my sermons <laughs> that would have otherwise been asleep were it not for Ed's faithful provision of coffee. There were still some who found ways to fall asleep, uh, but I have it on good authority they were not drinking Ed's coffee. Uh, Leah um, sang uh, for a number of years in the Cornerstone uh, trio, which became the Cornerstone Quartet when I arrived. <laughs> in 1992, uh, my membership on the team did not last uh, long. <laughs> Just a clash of egos, you know what I mean? You get four gifted vocalists together in a group and there's just conflict uh, but I appreciate the fact that Leah stayed on the team even after I quit. For many years, uh, Ed has served as an usher on our church's welcoming team, and it was not until uh, recently that Ed retired from his service as an usher. He was having trouble standing for the length of time that he needed to stand in order to pass out bulletins and to greet those of you who came into the auditorium. After all, he was 88 years old. So he retired from his ushering duties, I think about, uh, about three months ago. As important as anything else that Ed and Leah have done, they have shown us what a godly marriage uh, looks like. They have faithfully loved and been a help to each other over the 68 years of their marriage. About a month ago, Ed was hospitalized with uh, chest pain. Soon thereafter, he had surgery replacing his aortic valve with an artificial heart valve. After two and a half weeks of recovery, he's doing great, and we're happy to have him and Leah with us in our service today. Ed was telling me this week that he and Leah have been blown away by all those who have been offering to help them in various ways and by those who have visited with them and brought them food. He said that every meal has been good and he and Leah 
very much enjoyed them and appreciated the love with which they were given. Ed and Leah, we just want to take this opportunity to praise God for both of you, for your faithful years of ministry, and for the example that you have set for all of us. We say thank you. You are giants among us, and we praise God for the helpers that you have been to the ministry uh, here. And by the way, Ed turned 89 this past Wednesday. So happy birthday, Ed. He said people have been congratulating him for reaching 90 this week. I guess they got some of their facts wrong, but uh, let's not rush them. As we have been reviewing over the last uh, two weeks, our purpose statement as a church is helping people to journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first word of our uh, purpose statement has been the focus of this short series that we are concluding today. And to fulfill our purpose statement, uh, we need every member to be on board with this vision, with every Cornerstone member seeing himself or herself essentially on the church staff as a helper to other people in their journey to wholeness. And one of the best ways to become a good helper to others is to spend time gazing at the ultimate helper who is God himself. So last week, we we took some time to stare at God, to behold God, and we learned four truths about him last Sunday. First of all, we learned that God is the ultimate helper to those who trust in him. Second, we learned that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be our helper. Third, we learned that he sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper And fourth, we learn that we, in response, must embrace our neediness and cry out to God to help us as only he can. And we must choose him as our ultimate helper over anything or anyone else. Today, what we're going to learn is that God delights to bring human helpers into our lives who can be agents of his help to us. We actually see this in the Bible as early as Genesis chapter 2. In fact, uh, let's play Bible trivia real quick. Here's a Bible trivia question for you. What was the last thing that God made during the creation week? What was the last thing that God made during the creation week? In Genesis 2.18, God says, I will make a blank. What was it? A helper. Very good. A helper whom we call Eve. And here's what's fascinating to me when I read that account of God making Eve to be a helper to Adam. God had created a perfect world full of lush provision and every kind of animal for Adam to exercise dominion over and to harness a world in which Adam could walk with God and enjoy the bounty of what God had created and provided for him. And yet in that perfect world full of lush provision, Adam was looking for something that he could not find. In Genesis 2, verse 20, the text says that there was not found a helper suitable for him. And just think about that. Was God offended that Adam was looking for a helper suitable for him? Did God say, what's the matter, Adam? Am I not enough for you? What are you doing looking for a helper when you have me? No, God did not respond that way. In fact, God agreed 
that Adam needed a helper, and God resolves to make a helper suitable for Adam. Not a helper who replaces God, but a helper who serves as an agent through whom God would provide for Adam the help that he needs. Among other things, God's creation of Eve for Adam shows that God has the heart of a helper. God sees when people need help, and he's good about providing help in the form of a human person when that is needful, even to the point of sending his son to take on human flesh to be our helper centuries later. And then even beyond that, God supernaturally saves and empowers his children in the church to be helpers to us and empowering us to be helpers to others. And that's why we can actually be helpers to people in their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to do this effectively, what I want to do this morning with the time that we have is to just look at five truths that give us perspective on our ministry of helping people. Five truths that give us some perspective on our ministry of helping uh, people. The first truth that we see is that we should help people by pointing them to God as their ultimate helper. Guys, the single greatest thing that you can do to be a help to others is to always be looking to God as your ultimate helper and be pointing other people to God so that they do the same. Whenever you engage in some action that brings help to another person, make sure they know that you were only able to do that because you obtained help from God to do so. As Paul says in Acts twenty six twenty two. And let them know that any help that comes from you to another person has ultimately originated in God. Don't ever let anyone you're trying to help idolize you. And don't ever let yourself idolize someone else who is an agent of God's help in your life. You know we have that tendency, don't you? And we have to resist that. And always look to God and point others to him as the ultimate helper. Beyond that, if you see someone who is struggling with weakness, help them and pray for them. But make sure that you tell them how the spirit is there to help them and to intercede for them with groanings that are too deep for words. If you see someone struggling with temptation, come alongside of them and help them and pray with them. But make sure you point them to Christ and tell them how Christ suffered, all that he suffered, so that he can help them in their moments of temptation in a way that you never can. If a fellow Christian is struggling under a spirit of condemnation, don't try to help them by telling them how much you think they're awesome. Tell them what God did for them through Christ at the cross so that there can now be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be pointing to God at every turn. If you see a brother or sister struggling with discontentment or greed or fear, point them to God as their ultimate helper. The writer of Hebrews does exactly this in Hebrews chapter 13 Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says to those who are struggling with the love of money and discontentment and fear. And notice how the writer of Hebrews points his readers to God as their helper. In verse 5, he says to them, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. The love of money can manifest itself in a variety of forms. You can love the money that you don't have yet to such a degree that you're obsessed with obtaining it and you'll sacrifice anything to get that money that you don't have yet. You can love the money that you do have to such a degree that you won't share it with others. Tied to the love of money is fear. 
a fear of facing some circumstance in which money may not be available to help you in your time of need because money is power. The writer of Hebrews calls upon his readers and all of us to have a character, a lifestyle that is free of the love of money. Not a lifestyle that's free of money, but free of the love of money. And he also calls them and us, look what he says, to be content with what you have. The word content speaks of sufficiency. To be content is to view what you have as being sufficient. And it also means to experience a spiritual sufficiency in your heart that frees you from money and the things that money can buy to provide that sufficiency for you. And notice that he tells them to be content with what you have. You might want to underline those words. What is it that the Christian has? What do his readers have? They have God. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says as he continues in verse 5. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently or courageously say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Whatever your circumstances right now, if you are a Christian, you have the greatest possession of all. And that is God. And you don't just have him in this hour. You will have him with you Always, tomorrow and the next day, good days and bad days. And you don't have to guess about that because God has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Listen to those words there. In fact, there, in the Greek text, there's actually a triple negative in this promise, which causes the Amplified Bible to translate God's promise in this way. They translate God as saying, I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake, nor let you down or relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. Now, how's that for assurance? A triple guarantee from God. It's because you and I have this assurance from God that we can have courage even if in this given moment we may not be able to see the bigger story of what God is up to in our life, we may not have much money in the given moment, but if the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is with us and promises to never leave us, well, then we can be content because we have him, the ultimate good. You may not yet have the answer to some prayer that you have been praying for years but you do have him with you and no one and nothing can ever take him away from you. If anyone asks you, what do you have? You can always say, I have God. And he's with you at all times explicitly to be your very present and fully engaged helper He's not like a teenager that may be physically with you, but the teenager's on his phone with earbuds in. I'm with you, mom and dad, but they're disengaged. No, he's with you in a way wherein he's fully engaged and ready to be your helper that you might experience sufficiency in him. And you can rightly respond to God's promises and his presence with you by saying with confidence and courage, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Imagine getting up every morning and saying those words in every circumstance, speaking those words. By the way, the verse that the writer of Hebrews is quoting from here is uh, Psalm 118.6. This is a, a, a quotation from the Greek Septuagint translation of Psalm 118.6. 
But knowing that you always have God with you as your helper, knowing this deep in your bones can deliver you from fear, from anxiety. It can deliver you from the love of money, and it can deliver you from discontentment and give you courage like nothing else can. The more we experience God as our ever-present ultimate helper, the less we feel the need to covet things, to fill some void in our hearts that only God can fill because God is meeting the ultimate needs of our heart in a way that nothing else can. Money is not our ultimate helper. The things that money can buy are not our ultimate helper. God is. And if we truly want to bring help to people, we need to be looking to God as our ultimate helper and always pointing others to this God as well and teaching them to say, the Lord is my helper and really mean it. There's a second truth we should keep in mind if we want to be helping people, and this is very much tied to the first, and that is that we should help people by evangelizing them. We should help people by preaching the gospel to them. If you came to the Apostle Paul and, and asked him, Paul, what is, what is the most important way that you help people? Paul would say, I evangelize them. I preach the gospel to them. We actually see this on display in Acts chapter 16. Paul is on his second missionary journey and he finds himself in the coastal city of Troas just across the sea from Macedonia. And observe what happens one night while Paul was trying to figure out what to do next. Verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and what? And help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The Greek word translated preach the gospel is one word. It's the word evangelize. So notice the connection here. The man from Macedonia says, come over and help us. That's all he says. And Paul concludes that God had called him to preach the gospel to the people of Macedonia. So in Paul's mind, to help equals to evangelize. After all, how could Paul think otherwise? The gospel is the message that while we were still helpless, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We were lost in our sins, helpless to save ourselves, but God sent Jesus Christ, the helper, into the world to live the life that we were helpless to live and then die on a cross in order to give us an atonement that we were helpless to provide for ourselves. And if we call upon his name and we believe in Jesus, the Bible says we will be saved. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I just want you to know I'm, I'm so glad you're here. We've prayed for this service. We prayed for you. I'm here to tell you that you are helplessly lost, but you are not hopelessly lost. Christ died and he was raised from the dead and he can rescue you if you will believe in him and call upon his name to save you. If you will admit your helplessness and put your trust in him as your helper who provides ultimate help for you in dying on a cross that you might have atonement for your sins. If you believe in him and call upon his name, he will be pleasured to forgive you of your sins and clothe you with his righteousness and bring you into right relationship with God forever. Please respond to that call today if you have not yet 
The Apostle Paul hears this invitation, come over and help us. He concludes, this means that I need to go into Macedonia and preach the gospel to the people there. And so he obeys that call immediately. He went across the sea and he encounters Lydia and some other women who were by the side of a river. And he preaches the gospel to them. And Lydia and her household believed the Lord opened their heart and thus the church in Philippi was born. And throughout Paul's ministry, everywhere Paul went, he tried to help people by evangelizing them. And he didn't just evangelize the lost. He also evangelized the saved. In his mind, the most helpful thing that a person can do for anyone saved or lost is to evangelize them, to declare, present gospel truth to them. This is why Paul preached the gospel to lost people everywhere he went, to every city that he went to. And this is why he spent so much of his letters to churches continuing to evangelize Christians with gospel truth. This is what Paul is doing in Romans 1 through 11. This is what he's doing in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. This is what he's doing in Colossians 1 and 2 and in many other places, evangelizing the saints and teaching them how to reason from gospel truth to every area of their life. Paul was always evangelizing the lost and the saved. And we need to help people in the same way. If you truly want to be a helper, then you want to be someone who evangelizes people, sharing the gospel with them. There's a reason our purpose statement begins with the word helping and ends with the words gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a reason our aim is to be helping people through the gospel of Jesus Christ, because giving the gospel to people is the single most helpful thing we can do for a person. Do you believe that? There are some who would not disagree, would not agree with that. If some people uh, nowadays saw a vision of a man from Macedonia saying to them, come over and help us, they would think, oh, we must go over into Macedonia and dig some wells or distribute food and clothing or fight against income inequality there. But that's not the way that Paul thought. Paul was all for these other things. Digging wells, for example, is important. But digging wells for people while failing to evangelize them is simply helping to keep people hydrated on their way to hell. Evangelism, as we're going to see in a few moments, is not the only thing that we are called to do for people, but it is the primary thing that we are called to do. And in the end, it is the thing that those we minister to need the most for their eternal good. I know this analogy is not uh, perfect by any means, but a Christian who ministers to physical and material needs of people without ever preaching the gospel or sharing the gospel with them is like a doctor who spends all of his time stitching up a wound on a man's hand that is protruding from the water when the man's head is under the water and he's drowning. If that doctor really has compassion for that man, he will show some concern for the greater need and seek to address that. In their book entitled, What is the Mission of the Church? that our elder board has been reading and discussing over the last uh, handful of months. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert speak these words. Listen to what they say. There is something worse than physical death. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed by Christians can set us free from what we truly must fear. 
The doctrine of hell reminds us that the greatest need of every person will not be met by the United Nations or Habitat for Humanity or the United Way. It is only through Christian witness, through proclamation of Christ crucified, that the worst thing in all the world, which is hell, will not fall on all those in the world. Let's believe that. What they're saying there is spot on. And let's agree in our hearts with what the scripture teaches and even what we see in Paul's example and realize that declaring the gospel to the lost is the single most compassionate and loving thing that we can do for people. Let's embrace God's call to share the gospel with others. And then after they get saved, let's keep evangelizing them. But let's not just do that. Let's help people in other ways, too. And this leads us to the third truth that we should know about helping people in their journey to wholeness. Number three, we should help the weak. We should help the weak. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul calls upon all believers to help the weak. Every Christian has this responsibility and privilege. If you're a Christian, it's in your job description to help the weak. The word translated help is the Greek word that means to take instead or simply to take hold of. It speaks of someone who takes another person's burden onto himself and gets underneath that load of that burden such that the burden is now lighter on the person who is weak. The expression, the weak, speaks of literally those who are without strength. That's what the word weak, the Greek word means, without strength, no strength. It could speak of those who are without physical strength in the sense of being elderly or sick. This word is translated sick, I think, 19 times in the New Testament. It could speak of those who are without spiritual strength, uh, such as a spiritual babe in Christ, or even mature Christians who are worn down through their circumstances or persecution or from ministry. Or it could speak of those who are economically weak due to poverty or even injustice. It could speak of those who are left in an emotionally or mentally weakened condition because of traumas that they have experienced. Yesterday afternoon, some of us from Cornerstone got to minister to some of the military veterans at March Air Force Base, and our hearts broke as we engaged with some very brave men and women who are just like this, emotionally, mentally weakened because of things they've endured. Beyond that, in Romans 14, 1, Paul speaks about the brother who is weak in faith. Same word, whom we need to try to build up rather than tear down by the choices that we make. So as you can see, this expression, the weak, can cover a wide swath of different types of situations. And we're being told in this passage to help the weak. In Acts 20, Paul is speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church and he reviews for them how he behaved when he was among them for three years. And listen to what he says, starting in verse uh, 34 of Acts 20. He says to these Ephesian elders, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me and everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Just from looking at this passage, 
we see that helping the weak often includes helping those who are experiencing economic weakness or material need. So living a lifestyle of helping the weak involves working hard at an occupation so that you can meet your own needs and have resources left over to give to people who are materially weaker than you are. Paul was an example of this kind of lifestyle. He worked as a tent maker to generate income to meet his own needs and to have funds even above and beyond that to help the weak. And notice that Paul was not just an example of doing the hard work of helping the weak. He also exemplified a positive mindfulness of the promise of Jesus about how much more blessed it is to give than to receive. The Ephesian elders would have heard Paul's words in this passage and they would have said, yeah, that's the way Paul was. We remember he worked hard when he was among us so that he could help the weak at every turn. And we also remember that as he did so, he was always talking about Jesus and what Jesus said about how it is more blessed to give than to receive. Yeah, that's, that's our memory of Paul. We have so many people in this church body who live this same ethic who show by your life the truth of Jesus' words that it is more blessed to give than to receive. One of our care groups has made some trips down to El Papalote, Mexico, to minister dental and medical and other kinds of care to people who otherwise could not afford it. Another one of our care groups has made bags for the homeless containing essential supplies so that each care group member has a handful of those bags in their cars and they're able to give those to homeless individuals that they are able to engage with as they come across them. Beyond such things, it's always a pleasure to see how care group members rally together to meet the needs of one of their own when they are in a situation of weakness or in need. Many of you give to the Agape Fund, which empowers us as a church to give funds to, to individuals in our fellowship and beyond who are in a place of crisis or economic weakness. I think of the Thanksgiving baskets that many of you participated in giving out this past year. I think of the care groups who once a month are at the Path of Life homeless shelter providing and enjoying a meal together with the homeless families that are there and preaching the gospel to them and seeking to minister to their souls at the same time. The list could go on and on. But in all these ways and more, you as a church are reflecting the image of God who is the ultimate helper and being agents of his help to those who are weak. I encourage you to just, even in your own life and your care groups, be exploring how God might want you to do this personally in your own life or in your group. And I'm sure it will look different for every individual and every care group. But what would God lead you to do? What is he already using you to do? And is there any way that you might feel led of God to excel still more. I had a couple, a married couple approach me a few years ago and just say, hey, you know what? God has blessed us as a family this year financially, and we want to, we often want to bless someone else at the end of the year with what God has blessed us with. Is there anyone that you know of that has any need that we can anonymously give to those are great questions to get as a pastor. And I ran their question by the pastoral staff and was happy to give them someone's name so that they could then cut a cashier's check and bless this other family anonymously. This sort of thing happens a lot in our midst here at Cornerstone. I heard of two such incidences just this past week alone. 
the beauty of Christ that is manifested through you and your love for each other is breathtaking to behold. It's good for each of us, every one of us, no matter how much or how little we make to set aside a certain amount of money so that we can have the means available to meet the needs of those who are materially weaker than we are. It's also good to make sacrifices and to try to live on less so that we have even more to give to others, knowing that it's truly more blessed to give than it is to receive. Beyond that, we should all realize that when God gives us spiritual strength, that strength is not just for us alone. Maybe you came in this morning and you're feeling so strong spiritually. Well, that strength you're feeling isn't just for you and for your benefit. It's not just for us alone when we are spiritually strong. That strength should be used to come alongside of someone else who is spiritually weaker than we are and to lift them up and to bring them along. I love seeing the multi-generational mix in our care groups and in many of our other ministries and to see how people who are stronger and further along in their journey in Christ are sharing their strength and their knowledge with those who are younger or weaker in their faith. Let's just keep doing that. Let's keep excelling still more. Ask God to help you to dream big about ways that you can genuinely be a help to the weak and then experience the blessing of doing that. Take Jesus' words that Paul quotes as a dare and discover that it truly is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe Jesus when he says that, by the way? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? Put that to the test and help the weak. There's another truth we should keep in mind if we want to be a help to people. Number four, we should help those who are experiencing relationship conflict. We should help those who are experiencing relationship conflict. In Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion. Now he's speaking to someone else, a third party. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I know some of us would love to know the details of this conflict. We just have to be in the know about these kind of things, but there's actually almost nothing that we can know other than that these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, were genuine believers in Christ who had labored with Paul in the cause of the gospel. These are godly women. We know that their disagreement was not a doctrinal disagreement. Otherwise, Paul would have sided with one of them over the other. But Paul treats these women with equal care and equal urgency. Look at his language in verse 2. Notice how he uses the verb urge twice. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche. Paul is being so careful not to side with one woman over the other. Based on the literal meaning of the Greek word translated urge, Paul is coming alongside of each woman and appealing directly to each woman and calls them to live in harmony or literally to agree or to be of the same mind. Something had happened in the relationship between these two women that had gotten these women at odds with each other and their conflict had become so bad that Paul has to mention their names in this epistle. We're going to meet Euodia and Syntyche in heaven one day. And we'll get to find out how thrilled they were to have their names mentioned in Scripture in this context. 
But they needed this. Paul is trying to help these women by appealing to them to reconcile. But he seems to know that what he has said to them is not enough. So in verse 3, he says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. I'm helping these women by my appeal, but I'm asking you also to join me in helping these women. We don't know who this true companion was, although there are various guesses among commentators, but whoever he is, Paul is telling him to help, to help these women resolve their conflict. Notice how Paul does not want his true comrade to forget the good in these women who are in conflict. He tells his comrade that they were women who shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. Paul has not forgotten the good in these two women, and he doesn't want those who are helping them to forget about the good that they have done either. And notice that Paul says, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, uh, this phrase, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, this phrase could simply be describing those whom Euodia and Syntyche had labored in ministry together with, along with Paul, in an earlier day. But it's also quite possible that this phrase is modifying Paul's command to help. And some commentators understand this in this way. It could be that Paul is saying to his true companion, help these women together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers who should also be helping them. That could be the idea of what Paul is saying. And if this is his meaning, then Paul is not just calling upon his true comrade to help reconcile these women, but he's also calling upon Clement and others to pitch in and to help these women be of one mind with each other. However you choose to understand this, what I want us to take away from this passage is that sometimes genuine Christians experience conflict that they can't seem to resolve on their own. And they need another brother or two or three or more to step in and move towards them and to help in the resolution of that conflict and bring them to unity. So if you ever find yourself having a relational conflict that just doesn't seem to get solved just between you and this other person, maybe your spouse, don't be ashamed of that. We see this very thing happening in the first century church of Philippi among two godly women. In fact, I think it's true sometimes that God does not allow you to resolve things on your own because he wants to do a deeper work of humbling you and getting you to reach out and receive help from other people. And he wants to give others the blessing of helping you and having a closer relationship with you. Some of the best friendships in our church were birthed out of a crisis where people moved toward them in a relational conflict, for example, and were a true help to them. And now that conflict is over and there's a relationship there that would have never been there were it not for that original conflict. There have been times over the years of my walk with the Lord when I have had a conflict with someone that required people to come in and help. One time I was actually, as a pastor, involved in helping some people reconcile. And in the meeting, I ended up saying something that created a conflict between me and one of the persons that I was trying to reconcile with someone else, which then required the help of even more people to help bring resolution between me and this person. My wife and I have been married for uh, 32 years, and there have been several times when we have had to reach out to others to help us with our relationship. We felt embarrassed about doing that, but we should not have felt embarrassed. Mine and Donna's marriage still stands today, and we love each other more than we ever have, partly because of the help that God has given to us through his people who have helped us. 
I wish we had time to spend on, on this thought, but you might be thinking, all right, I want to obey this call and I want to be able to help people who are in relationship conflict, but how do I do that? There's a lot that could be said, but I'll just give you... Uh, one or two suggestions. Number one, spend some time studying Philippians 2, 1 through 11. A passage in which Paul delivers some passionate appeals for humility and unity and then points to the example of Christ to inspire people to be humble and unified. In fact, my suspicion is that Paul was already talking to Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians 2, and he was already equipping everyone on the helping team with what he's saying in those verses. So spend time in those verses and ponder how that would be useful in equipping you in whatever conflict you're in or someone that you're trying to help. Also, when helping fellow Christians reconcile, do your best not to take sides. You should be for the spiritual growth and transformation of both people, and you should be against the sin in both of them. Regardless of the conflict, you can know that God is surely wanting to do a work in both parties, not just in one of them. And you want to make sure that you are helping both parties to experience the fullness of what it is that God is wanting to do in them. And you want to minister to them, abounding in hope that he who began a good work in them will complete that work until the day of Jesus Christ and minister to them in that conflict from a position of hope for them. All in all, be a helper to people who are in relationship conflict. Be a peacemaker who helps people to reconcile rather than a troublemaker or a person who just says, I'm staying out of this. And if you need help in reconciling with another person or you're struggling in your marriage, feel free to reach out to other people and ask for help. The Christian community should be a place where help for such things is freely sought and freely given. Amen? There's a final truth we learn in the New Testament that gives us perspective on our ministry of helping people, and that is that we should help those who help others. We should help those who help others. Uh, In Romans 16, Paul uh, speaks about an amazing woman named Phoebe who was the carrier of Paul's letter to the Romans. None of us in this room have ever met Phoebe, but we are all beneficiaries of her faithfulness to deliver Paul's letter to the Roman Christians in the first century. Imagine if she had been negligent and lost the letter or failed to deliver it. Imagine the fruit that abounds to Phoebe's account because she was faithful in the task of delivering this letter as a help to Paul and to the Roman Christians. Listen to what Paul tells the Roman Christians to do regarding Phoebe when she arrived with the letter. Verse 1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centria, which was the eastern port of Corinth. Verse 2, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Paul describes Phoebe as a servant in the church. The word translated servant is diakonon, from which we get our word deacon, which probably means that she was a deaconess of that church who had obviously done much to meet the needs of the saints in the Corinthian church in a variety of practical ways. Beyond that, she's definitely helping Paul and the Romans by delivering Paul's letter to them. And here Paul is calling upon the Roman Christians to receive her in the Lord and to help her in whatever ways she needs. Notice how he describes Phoebe as one who has been a helper of many and of myself as well. 
That's how he describes her, a servant and a helper to many, including himself. This is a woman who lives a lifestyle of helping people. And Paul calls upon the Romans to help her as she lives that lifestyle of helping many. And all I want to do is, uh, all I want to draw from this passage this morning is an encouragement for uh, all of you to not just simply be a helper to other people, but also to be a helper to helpers. So many of you already do this. Right now we have a family in our church that has taken a couple children into their home in order just for a season to help out another family. And this family that has taken in these, these children was telling me this week about some of the ways that you have been helping them with clothes and food and money that this helping family never asked for. And also you offering to help care for the kids. Those of you who are doing these kinds of things are being a helper to helpers. Enriching their capacity to be a help to another family during a difficult season. That's what it's all about. Look around you in this church. Is there someone in the church who's engaged in a ministry of helping others? Is there some way they can use your help? Can you come alongside them in some way that makes their burden of helping others a little bit lighter or a little less lonely? Is there some resource that they might need in their ministry of helping that you can bless them with? We recently advertised the opportunity to serve Brian Q, one of our members who is confined to a wheelchair to take him home from church and to provide lunch for him on Sundays and to bring him to and from men's Bible study on Tuesday nights. And over the past few years, there have been certain individuals that have been helping Brian in this way, but they needed others on the team to help spread the load and to share the blessing. And a number of you have stepped up to help in recent weeks. And I want you to know that in doing that and stepping up in this way, you're not just helping Brian Q, but you're also helping those who have been helping Brian Q. And you're such an encouragement to them as you are putting your shoulder to the plow together with them and being a helper to Brian and a helper to those who have been helping him. It's the same with all of our other ministries. When you volunteer for the nursery or children's church, you're not just helping the children, you're helping those who are already on the rotation of helping the children, making their load a little lighter. When you volunteer to help with Awana, you're not just helping the children that you're ministering to, you're helping Seaburn Boone and his team of amazing helpers as they serve these children. If you volunteer to help the Sunday's facilities team, you aren't just serving everyone who comes onto the campus, you're also helping the members of the facilities team, making their load a little bit lighter. So I just mention a few examples, but look around and look for ways that you can be a helper to helpers. Children, look for ways that you can be a helper to your mom and dad when they're trying to serve your family in some way. Don't just sit around and expect to be helped and served and you pitch in and be a help. And be a help to your parents as they're trying to help you and your siblings. And parents, you are the ultimate helper to helpers when you are investing in your children and raising them and training them to be helpers to others. Guys, there's literally thousands of ways that we have opportunity as a church 
to reflect the image of God and to be agents of his help to other people. And God stands ready to, to bless, to continue to bless and to help each one of us as we seek to do that. Imagine what God can do through our church if every single member of Cornerstone felt called into the ministry of being a helper to people and dreamed big about what that might mean for them and then gave themselves to a ministry of helping, helping the weak, helping to mend relationships, bringing help to other helpers, pointing people to God as their ultimate helper and evangelizing people both lost and saved, sharing gospel truth with people as a way of helping them. Imagine what God can do with our little church of 500 people who each make it our job to be helpful in these ways. And then we're all careful to give him the glory for the help he gives us as we seek to help others in their journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and let's ask God for his help as we seek to live this out. Lord, may it be that anyone who comes into our midst would have no doubt that God is the ultimate helper because they experience his help through his people who are here. There are millions of such helpers around the world and hundreds of thousands of churches that are faithful to the gospel, Lord, this kind of helping ministry in all of these varieties is happening all over the globe. We pray your blessing on these churches and, and these helpers in their ministry. And we just say to you that we're thankful, Lord, to be numbered among them here in this city called Riverside. We're thankful for the helpers who are present, Leah, a part of Cornerstone. We're also thankful, Lord, for those who are a part of Cornerstone's history who have exhibited the very ethic that we have been talking about this morning. My wife and I just last night were just reviewing people from 20... 25 years ago at Cornerstone who are now gone home to glory who just exhibited these, this ethic in such beautiful ways. We miss them, Lord. We thank you for them. We thank you for the imprint that they have left on those of us who are here today. Lord, we don't our ambition is not to be some great mega church. All we, all we want, Lord, is to just, if we could just be helpers in the way that we've seen in our passages today, that's enough for us. We'll leave everything else to you. Make us helpers who glorify your name, who exhibit your heart through the help that we give that we would be a people not just of proclamation and declaration, but also a people of demonstration who tangibly bring the help of God to others. That all would know, that all would behold us and be touched by our ministry and be inspired to turn their eyes upon you, Lord, and join us in looking to you as the ultimate helper of helpers.
and praise you for the God that you are. Thank you for all the ways that you are already blessing and showing your goodness through the wonderful people of this congregation. And we ask for your enabling to excel still more, that we might glorify you even more, and that we might experience even more the truth of the statement that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Speaking of which, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you. These funds are going to go to people that are helping serve your cause around the world and in this community and giving in this offering. We're being a helper to helpers and supporting your work. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord, and take everything that we give in this offering and do much with it for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said,